0: Somebody can complete this sentence for me. You've heard it said on TV. Maybe you've said it yourself. I hope it's never been said to you. you actually, I kind of hope you never said it either. But uh, when a relationship goes awry, somebody will generally say, I love you, but I'm not in love with you. Love you, but I'm not in love with you. Now, the reason I bring this to your attention is because we're continuing our collection of talks in the second book of your New Testament. It's called Mark, which if you brought a Bible, you can uh, go ahead and open up to Mark chapter 12. If you're using a device. I'm going to be in the New Living Translation this morning, so you can change over to that. But uh, if you're new to the series, no problem. You can go back online. The messages live there forever. you want to do that before the end of the month when we take the quiz on mark. (laughs) It's not a quiz. Do not worry about that if you're a guest. But um, those of you in, in the room, those of you watching online, those of you at our home church locations, why I wanted you to think about this idea of, I love you, but I'm not in love with you, is because here's the question that I'm trying to answer. Is it possible to love God and not be in love with God? I don't know if you thought about that before, but there's a lot of people who claim to love God, but there's not really any evidence of it in their lives. So it's a message I'm calling Truth and No One Dares. Let's go. Mark chapter 12, starting in verse 28. One of the teachers of religious law was standing there listening to the debate. Pause. There was a little bit of a debate. Apparently, Jesus, unlike some political figures, is not scared of a debate. And uh, some Pharisees came up to question a little stab at the. Never mind. Some of you caught it. Uh, the Jesus is having a debate. Some Pharisees came up to him and questioned him. And then some Sadducees, they wanted in, so they began to interrogate him. And then this scribe is there to see the whole thing. He witnesses it all. He realizes that Jesus had answered well. So he asks Jesus, of all the commandments, which is the most important... Which is the most important? Of all the commandments, which is the most important? Jesus replied, The most important commandment is this. Listen, O Israel, the Lord our God is the one and only Lord. And you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. The second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. No other commandment is greater than these The teacher of religious law replied, well said, teacher, you have spoken the truth by saying that there is only one God and no other. And I know it's important to love him with all my heart and all my understanding and all my strength and to love my neighbor as myself. This is more important than to offer all of the burnt offerings and sacrifices required in the law. Realizing how much the man understood, Jesus said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. You've got it here in your mind If only we could get it here in your heart. You're not far. You're 18 inches away. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the power that is contained in it. God, we are not here for some sort of mental exercise. We are here to hear from you. There's nothing better than you. God, make that true in our lives. Help us understand that fully. Transform us today. Help us leave one step closer to your son, Jesus. It is in his powerful name that we pray. Amen. So we have here in this text the first recorded game in history of Truth or Dare. Don't know if you played that in junior high or high school, but it was just the worst. Wasn't it? Truth or Dare. I dare you to smell everyone's armpits in this room. What? No, that is terrible. Why would you ever do that? That That's just a worse game. Whoever thinks of games like this. But Jesus was clearly not very good at the game, because based on his truth, uh, no one dared to ask him any more questions. I don't know if you've ever been in a room with someone like that before, where they're just heads smarter than everybody else, and you feel ashamed asking them a question, because they've always got an answer. Sometimes they answer your question before you even ask it, just because they're talking about something. You're like, I always wondered that, and here we are. And Laura and I uh, rented a little apartment from a couple, and the husband was literally the. smartest guy I have ever met in my entire life. And uh, one day he had asked me to help him in the garage. And uh, his his job was in the aviation industry. He was basically a fixer. If there was any problem with any sort of aircraft and for, it was down for some reason, they would call him and he would uh, essentially tell them what to do. And then the plane would magically fly again. But, uh, again, we were in the garage. He asked me for something for help. And uh, he knew something about everything, so uh, his phone rings over It's during the day, and somebody from work had called him and said, "You know, hey, we got a problem with this plant." He's like, "Okay, go to Bin 814C. There will be a little Ziploc bag uh, with a stainless steel screw and a rubber washer. It's labeled M4 fine. If you put that in the sixth chamber of Engine Two and tighten it down to sports, you know, spec rating 143 nanometers per foot." Power, uh, the, the plane will work. And I was like, what is happening right now with this, some kind of black magic? And uh, I, know, I didn't dare question him ever again on anything. Anything he ever told me, I just went ahead and did whatever he said. It's a little different than what's happening here in the Bible, because these people were questioning Jesus with the intent to trap him. With the exception of this scribe that we read about, the rest of the folks are trying to catch Jesus in a quandary, and then they can have him arrested. They couldn't do that uh, because the people thought that, that Jesus was a great prophet, and uh, they tried to catch him in this lie. They were unable, and then they weren't even mad. Like, they were just too scared to even ask him anything else. They didn't dare ask him any more questions. I wonder how many of the questions that we ask Jesus are done with a humble heart or ill intent. I wonder if we've ever tried to question Jesus with the idea of trapping him. Because there's clearly nothing wrong with asking Jesus questions. Jesus loves answering questions. The woman at the well, she asked Jesus a question. What is this living water that you are talking about? The humble Pharisee Nicodemus, he came to Jesus with a question. He says, how am I born again? And Jesus likes questions. Last week we saw the disciples come to Jesus with a question. How come we were not able to cast out the demon when we were able to do it before? And Jesus doesn't mind questions. The problem is the intent of the question. Do we want Jesus' explanation or his permission? Because most people ask Jesus questions because they want his approval for something that they already have an answer for. So like Jesus, if the greatest commandment is love, which we're going to talk about that because it seems like on the surface that's what Jesus is saying, that the greatest commandment is love. If the greatest commandment is love, Jesus, should I be able to love whoever I want, whenever I want, however I want? And if for some reason I fall out of love, shouldn't I be able to transfer that love to whomever I want? And Jesus, if your yoke is easy and your burden is light, why are you asking me for 10% of my income? Because that's not a light burden or easy yoke, if you ask me. And Jesus, why are you asking me to sacrifice my time? I thought you wanted me happy. Jesus, I need a little me time for a while, right? You don't actually want Jesus's answer. You want his approval. You want him to tell you that your decisions are okay. It's the same game the religious people played back then. I want to define my life, and so I'm going to litigate around God's laws. Yeah, here's what I find so compelling about Christianity. Uh, there's a story in the Bible, I think it's Matthew chapter 18. Disciples and Jesus are all hanging out in some park. The kids are all playing. The disciples' families are all there. Some kids are off playing tag. Some of them are playing hide and seek around here. And one of the disciples' wives, she's a man in the Traeger, okay, smoking some uh, walleye or something. This is a little bit paraphrased, but you're, you, can follow, you can read it for yourself. But uh, the, the disciples come up to Jesus and they say, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And there's a little boy playing in front of Jesus and he was just eating a popsicle. So his face is all sticky. He also tried to eat some dirt and so it's all jacked up and it's in the Middle East. So do the kids just in his diapers hot, you know? And so Jesus picks up the kid in the diaper and says, sets him on his lap and says, here is the greatest in the kingdom of God. Whoever confesses his sin and turns from that and trusts me as Lord, this is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And the disciples were like, what? We saw that kid peeing in the sandbox like 30 seconds ago. Jesus, how is that? And the, that just literally happened to us. We were at some friend's house the other week and a kid just drops trout right there in the sandbox. And uh, But everyone's perplexed. Jesus, how are children great? Children are not great, not in terms of status, not in terms of power. How can a child be great? Jesus. And the reason is, of course, trust. Uh, children trust Jesus implicitly. Children take Jesus at his word. For the record, no other religion teaches us. No other religion says, turn from your sins towards uh, their whatever prophet and become like Children. No, it's years of earning God's favor. It's years of working hard. You have to be better. But listen to me now. If Jesus was only after you being better, he would have lived another 40 and 50 years and compiled a lengthy list of everything that you needed to do in order to be better. But you don't need to get better. You need to get born again. You need a new heart. One that trusts Jesus. Like a child trusts Jesus. That's why we need to be childlike, not childish. So a little context for our passage this morning would probably be helpful. First of all, this is Wednesday of Passion Week. On Monday, Jesus was riding a donkey into the city of Jerusalem. People were uh, declaring him as Lord. They were throwing down their coats onto the road, palm branches, anything they could do to make Jesus's ride uh, more comfortable. Keep the dust off his feet. Show him honor. If you thought the parade for Patrick Mahomes was Cool. this pales in comparison to that. Thousands of people gathered together to worship Jesus as king of the universe. That evening, Monday night, Jesus would go back to a village called Bethany, hang out with some of his friends, spend the night there. On Tuesday, he'd return to the temple and begin cleaning it, not with Windex, mind you, but rather with a whip, because he was kicking everybody out of the temple, because on Monday, during his little parade, he made a little pit stop at the temple, and he saw... Uh, the religious leaders, uh, upcharging, swindling people out of their money. And uh, the folks who were coming to the temple needed to buy sacrifices for this Passover law. God had rescued the people out of Egypt, out of slavery thousands of years before, and he commanded them to make sacrifices in return. Now, Rome is a huge empire. Jews scattered out all over for different reasons. Um, but they'd come back to Jerusalem to celebrate this event, and they couldn't travel that far with animals, so they'd have to buy their own. And these temple leaders were charging them an absorbent amount of money to buy their sacrifices. And not only that, but they had to pay for it in the temple currency. So then they'd uh, charge extreme exchange rates for currency to get people to be able to pay for everything that they needed to do to fulfill the law. Some temple leaders made this a business proposition. That didn't make Jesus happy, and so he hits them where it hurts. He hits them economically, and he kicks them all out of the temple violently. People like to think of gentle Jesus, meek and mild, with the lamb on his shoulders and his feathered beautiful hair and his purple sash and just calm and compassionate. Maybe, except on this terrible Tuesday, when Jesus goes Jocko Willink on some boys and jujitsu's them out of the temple, and they're too scared to even ever come back. And by Wednesday, a few hours later, on this day uh, that we read about, Jesus is preaching in the temple. He's not only preaching the good news of salvation, but he's preventing the bad news of the Sanhedrin. If you're unfamiliar, the Sanhedrin was comprised of the conservative side of the isle, the Pharisees, and the liberal side of the isle, the Sadducees. Things haven't changed that much in 2,000 years of human history. But the uh, scribes were also part of the Sanhedrin. They were the ones in charge of writing down the laws and interpreting the laws. And they all agreed, this dude, Jesus, he's got to go. He kicked us out of the temple. He's teaching all kinds of crazy things. By Friday, they will have him executed. In the meantime, they're trying to trick him in uh, his words because they know that if they can tarnish his reputation as a prophet, they'll be able to arrest him without inciting a riot. The people all loved him. Instead, they'll go to him in the dark of night in a garden where he's by himself with a few disciples to arrest him and crucify him. But they want to ask him some questions questions they ask him is it lawful for us to pay taxes to this wicked evil empire rome pharisees come and ask him that and he's like well whose face is on the coin caesar render caesar that which is caesar so the sadducees come and they're like uh we need to know jesus if you're married on earth and uh husband dies and he marries a whole bunch of other people who does she marry to in heaven. I didn't read any of this to you, you'll have to read it on your own. But Jesus answers them too. Enter the scribe. Realizing that Jesus had answered them well, he asks of all the commandments, which is the most important? Now, this is a big deal. This is no arbitrary question. The scribes had actually, uh, and other religious leaders, comprised 613 commands. And one of their favorite things to do was debate. Which command is the greatest? Sounds like a real hoot. I know. It's like... Heading a cat or something just sounds terrible. But of the 613 commands, which is the greatest one? You should know that there were 365 negative commands, one for every day, 365 prohibitions, you can't do this, which left them 248 positive commands by default. You must do this. You might be wondering, well, why 613? That seems like a random number. Oh, uh, because when God showed up onto the mountaintop with Moses, there's a thing called the Decalogue, where God uh, declares the law to Moses to give to the people. And in the original Hebrew, as Moses transcribed the words of God, there's 613 characters. And the uh, religious leader said, well, if there's 613 characters in the Decalogue, there must be 613 commands, which is just silly, right? That's ridiculous. But that's part of the religious game people like to play. Even today, there are pseudo-Christian teachers. You can find Christian books that talk about, well, seven's the perfect number. And so if you take the seventh day of the seventh week in the seventh century and you multiply that by seven, and if you listen to Pink Floyd's record, Dark Side of the Moon, backwards, and then vote for Joe Biden, then you will incite the return of Jesus Christ. And you're like, what are you talking about? God help us. But this reteach, this teacher of the religious law asks, which one of these 613 commands is the greatest? And the Pharisees are now paying attention because uh, they're like, well, if he gives one of our conservative laws, then the Sadducees will have him arrested for blasphemy. And the Sadducees are now paying attention because they're like, well, if he gives one of our, uh, you know, liberal laws, then the Pharisees will have him arrested for blasphemy. And this is a big deal because blasphemy is punishable by, punishable by death. And so they're like, back in the game, boys. All right, let's see what he says. Because nothing unites former enemies faster than a common enemy. Except Jesus doesn't give them one of the 613 commands. Instead, he gives them the Shema which uh, devout Jews, they still recite this two times a day, every day, even today. But it's Deuteronomy 6, 5. Jesus says, Listen, O Israel, the Lord our God, he is one. We must uh, love the Lord our God with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our strength, all of our mind. And then he continues with Leviticus 19, 18. His second is equally great, the command to love your neighbor as yourself. No commandment is greater than these. Here's why this is a big deal for you. You might want to jot this down. God is not trying to give you something to work on. He's trying to give you something to work toward. God is not trying to give you something to work on. He's trying to give you something to work on. If he was trying to give you something to work on, he would have given you a list, probably greater than 613 commands because he knows your heart and he knows that you are going to try and do all things that you can to get out of the law. It's the same reason in another portion of scripture when he's preaching, he says, you have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that if you even look at a woman lustfully, you've committed adultery in your heart. Jesus makes the law Harder. But Jesus doesn't do that here because Jesus wants to give you something better than the law. He knows you can't fulfill the law until something happens in your heart. In other words, love defines what it means to live lawfully. He's given you something to work toward, you're working toward love. Jesus is not saying these commands are more important than the Ten Commandments. These commands are more important than the 613 Commandments. He is not saying forget all the rules. What he is saying is until you understand that everything in the law is only done through love, that the only definition of the law exists because of God's love. I'll say it this way. God's not after your law-keeping. He's after your love-giving. I'll give you an example. Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not steal. You cannot fulfill the command, thou shalt not steal, simply by refraining from robbery. You have to understand that stealing hurts your neighbor. Starts with love. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image. I don't know why I'm quoting the King James, by the way. It just felt right, okay? But Jesus says you shall uh, not make an idol. You, you can't fulfill that command simply by not handcrafting some sort of statue in your garage. There's something bigger happening. It starts with your love for God. That's why you don't make it. It's what's going on in your heart. When Jesus says all the law basically boils down to love God and love other people, he's telling us why God wrote the law. And God did not just write the law for busy work. God was not up in heaven thinking, well, thousands of years are going to go by really slow for these people. I better give them something to do. No, God wrote the law to show you what the loving thing to do is. God wrote the law to show us how to love. It's why Jesus says in John 14, if you love me, you will what? Keep my commands. If you love me, you will keep my commands. Point being, loving God is not about what we feel, which is completely contrary to everything culture wants you to believe. Love is entirely about what you feel. It's why nobody questions you when you say, I love my wife and I love queso (laughs) equally is important, right? I love her lovely lady lumps. I love the absence of lumps in the queso. (laughs) Nobody thinks that's weird, okay? Some people might think that's weird when you say it like that, but I love both. Jesus never said, when you worship me, I want you to have all of the feels. Mm-hmm. Jesus never one time went out preaching and said his thing and looked around and said, do you feel that? It's love. What, what you're feeling is love. Jesus never did that. But it's title. what the world says. You have to feel something for the record Uh, loving God isn't just about what you feel, it's not even about what you believe. It's why the brother of Jesus writes in James 2.19, you believe that God is one, the greatest command, good. Even the demons believe and shudder. See, our belief, if not backed by obedience, if not backed by loving God's law, is the same as the demons. And there's a lot of self-professing Christians out there who only have demon belief. Now, people will come to me and say, well, Pastor, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whosoever believes in Him will not perish but have eternal life. Of course, it's about what you believe but this is why sometimes you have to dig into scripture a little bit harder because your new testament it wasn't written in english and sometimes english words don't really describe the best thing that's actually happening in the greek text and if you look at john three sixteen in the original greek that word there for believes is the greek word pistuvo don't be nervous we're not teaching that to your kids in kids ministry okay <laughs> pistuvo uh, Pestubo, uh, literally translates to have an obedience in. So it's for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whosoever puts their obedience in will not perish, the, uh, but have eternal life. So combine that knowledge with what we just read in James, you'll see the difference between a Christian's belief and a demon's belief. It's humility, service, obedience, loving God's law, living your love. And if you want to stay with John 3.16 for a minute, notice what God's love propelled him to do. For God so loved that he gave. Same should be true for you. Your love should compel you forward into obedience and service of God's people. Living for God is a choice. It's a free gift of salvation that requires nothing for you. Jesus paid your price on a cross, but after that choice, there's an action. You have choice backed by action. Christianity Christianity does not call you to love an invisible God who's somewhere up there or out there. Christianity calls you to love a physical God who sent his literal son to die for your sin. And in response to that, we get to live our lives faithfully for him. I heard a pastor once say that if uh, the fruit's no good, change the watering schedule. Like, do something different. If serving God isn't taking you the places you thought you should go, try something different try loving God and loving people. Yet I think one of the difficult things about this idea of loving God is that loving God is largely invisible. It largely happens in your soul. It's an internal passion, Uh, which is why Jesus said loving God, it becomes a literal expression when you love other people. Like you can't love God if you're not loving people. Now, this is very threatening and almost overwhelming because we feel immediately Like if we take Jesus seriously, we will not just have to love others as we love ourselves, but we will have to love them instead of loving ourselves. That's what it seems like, which is also why you shouldn't trust your feelings. Because uh, we fear that if we follow Jesus in this command, and if we really devote ourselves to loving other people and pouring out ourselves in the happiness of other people, then our desire for happiness will always be preempted. The neighbor's claim on my time and energy and creativity will always take priority over my own. But that's not at all what Jesus is saying. What Jesus is really saying is make yourself seeking the measure of your self-giving. You might want to write that down. Make yourself seeking the things that you desire. Make that the measure of yourself giving what you desire for other people. That's how you can know if you're loving yourself and other people. Like the uh, serve the people of God with the same intensity that you serve yourself. And so when you're at a restaurant and the waitress is taking forever and you're just like, I just need the Pepsi and a Queso woman. Can we get this out here already? And you feel bad, but your order is wrong and the kids are out of control and everybody's staring at you. And you're like, well, if she'd get this stuff here, we wouldn't still be here interrupting your meal. When that happens, do you still leave a good tip? You would if you were the waitress because if you were the waitress, you know this is actually her second job because her husband walked out on her. She's just trying to make ends meet and her kids are just barely old enough to stay at home by themselves. So she's a little scattered in her brain because in between bringing you your chips and salsa, she's back there texting the kids, making sure everybody's okay. See, for as much as God is after your effort in loving people, he's more after your empathy thinking through how what's going on in these people's lives. You have no idea what's happened in the people next to you's week, more than likely. And he's after your empathy. Do you think God is pleased when you love him, but you do nothing to express your love for him? Or do you think God is pleased when you express your love, but you don't actually worship him? Gave my 10% online. What do I need to come to church for? Maybe here's a better example. Ask my wife, do you want Landon to say that he feels in love with you and that he loves you, but he's unfaithful to you? Or would you rather have him faithful to you, but actually never hear the words, I love you, come out of his mouth? Laura would say neither. I want his heart and I want his faithfulness. She's greedy in that way. Okay? (laughs) but the same is true for God. God wants your heart and your faithfulness. God does not want you just coming in, throwing some money in the bucket and trying to do nothing to pursue happiness for anybody else. Only your own happiness. It's not what God is after. He wants your faithfulness and your fruitfulness. That's why Jesus said to the scribe, you're not far. You have the zeal. You know the law. You've got passion. What you're lacking is compassion. See, I hope you know that sometimes passion can drown compassion. Your zeal for the law will keep you from actually loving people. It's why in two days Jesus will be hanging from a cross. Because the most passionate people for God's law lacked the compassion to see that Jesus came to help everybody else. And God wasn't going to reward their cold-hearted law-keeping. It was kind of ironic as God warned his people about this hundreds of years prior when the prophet Isaiah, uh, Hosea shows up he says I want you to show love this is God speaking I want you to show love not offer sacrifices I want you to know me more than I want your stupid burnt offerings which here's all I'm trying to get you to consider do you really love God Do you really feel in love with God? Because it's possible to have demon belief where you believe in God, but you don't actually do anything to express your love for God. God's asking you to care for your soul by loving him and express your love for him by leaving the world better than you found it through caring for his people. How's that going to look for you this week? Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. We believe that it is true. We believe it possesses the power to change our lives. God, we believe in the power of your Holy Spirit, and we're asking you now to do what you said you would do and encourage us and help us. And for those who don't know you, I would ask that you open their hearts to fully understand the grace that you are offering to them, that when they confess their sins and believe in their heart that they can be saved. God, help them understand their need for you. Nothing is better than you. Open their spiritual eyes to come to you. Forgive us of our sin. God, those who have trust in you, who have been transformed by the power of your Spirit, God, help us learn how to love like you love. Give us opportunities to show that love this week. God, bring people to mind even right now. Maybe it's your spouse, maybe it's your kids, maybe it's the folks at school teachers students co-workers how is God's love in your life going to compel you to serve other people sounds counterintuitive but this is Jesus' promise that you love him by loving others that he will refresh your spirit God, refresh us now. Help us leave here eager and willing to change the world for your glory and our joy. We ask this in the power of Jesus' name. Amen.